This episode of Psych Black Women Podcast features a candid dialogue about Black women's knowledge production and the politics of citation. On Friday, February 26, 2021, scholars convened virtually at UC Berkeley. The lineup included Black Women Collective members Dr. Whitney L. Pirtle, Assistant Professor of Sociology at UC Merced, and Imani Awadu, PhD candidate in American Studies at the University of Kansas. The panelists include UC Berkeley faculty, alumni, and PhD candidates. Caleb Dawson organized the event, and it was presented by the Black Graduate Student Association in collaboration with African American Student Development and the Office of Graduate Study. Dr. Whitney Pirtle opens the conversation by reading an excerpt from the Site Black Women Collective Statement, currently in feminist anthropology. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy. What I wanted to do to begin is to give you all, so all of us here, almost 60 of us here, are going to be the first sort of engagers or interlocutors in the Site Black Women Collective Statement that is forthcoming in feminist anthropology, I think, this month. So we're really excited. It's a part of feminist anthropology is a new journal. I think it's going to be leading the field in many ways. Um, It is going to be a part of a special issue on site Black women. So there's a collective of pieces there. Um, So please do be on the lookout, engage, read, cite, assign, (laughs) extend, all of those things. Um, So I am going to just read a portion, a few pieces uh, that are in this statement. And so is my collective member, Amani. Um, Both Amani and I are named authors in the piece, as well as Kristen A. Smith and Erica Williams, who's at Spelman. So we are the four named authors, but it is important for us to also name the collective, even though they might not have helped in this particular moment to put words on paper, they were there authoring the piece through our conversations and through our interactions. And so even in sort of the creation of this statement, we said it's a statement, it's not necessarily a charge or, um, or it's, not, it's, it's, it's a statement in that it's going to be a living document and we're going to revise it over time. And we want it to be part of the collective energies and synergies that we find grounding in inside Black women. So we start by saying it's simple, cite Black women. Black women have been producing knowledge since we bless this earth. We theorize, we innovate, we revolutionize the world. We do not need mediators. We do not need interpreters. It's time to disrupt the canon. It's time to upturn the erasures of history. It's time to give credit where credit is due. Cite Black women. Cite Black women is more than a catchphrase or a hashtag. It's a statement, a command, a rebuke, a call to action, a a celebration, an act of rebellion, an ethos, an act of love. Behind it lies this critical question, What does it look like to dismantle the patriarchal, white supremacist, heterosexist, imperialist impetus of the neoliberal university and its accomplices by centering Black women's ideas and intellectual contributions? Embedded within this question, we also find our response. At least since the advert of slavery in the Americas, there has been a blatant total disregard for Black women's property. 
our things, our body, our love, our creations, and our ideas. The exploitation of and total disregard for our bodies in concert with the exploitation of our labor have been paralleled by the appropriation, abuse, and misuse of our intellectual labor. The stealing of our ideas and energy without pretense towards any form of acknowledgement, monetary or otherwise. As a result, one of the ethos of slavery is a continued and widespread perception that black women's ideas and creative works should be plagiarized, just like our labor, our bodies and our love. Plagiarism, like knowledge, power, and the academy, is, an, is a form of exploitation intimately tied to the projects of colonization, slavery, white supremacy, patriarchy, heterosexism, and imperialism. For centuries, people have been content with erasing us from mainstream bibliographies, genealogies of thought, and conversations about knowledge production because they view our ideas like they view our bodies that they can be violated. This has been especially true in the university, a bastion of neoliberal heteropatriarchy, white supremacy in the modern era. We are fed up with the state of affairs, especially now in this political moment. It is urgent that we reconfigure the politics of knowledge production by engaging in a radical praxis of citation that acknowledges and honors black women's transnational intellectual production. So who are we? Sight Black Woman is an interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary collective that includes queer, femme, and gender nonconforming people. Sight Black Woman is a movement dedicated to highlighting the expertise of Black women scholars, organically and academically trained, who are often undercut and undermined. We affirm the values of creative genius that Black women writers and thinkers have brought into this world and continue to develop to this day. So Sight Black Woman is a Black feminist intellectual project, praxis, and global movement to decolonize the practice of citation by redressing the epistemic erasure of Black women from the literal and figurative biographies of the world. Now, Imani is going to go through some of our praxis and our charge before we move into the Q&A. Okay, thank you for that first half, Whitney. Um, so to continue, um, in January 2018, Kristen Smith developed five guiding principles for Sight Black Women that outlined what we believe to be essential steps to critically taking on the challenge of our practice. One, read Black women's work. Read Black women's scholarship broadly. Seek out new authors and new texts. Engage in multiple forms of knowledge production. Familiarize yourself with the bodies of literature and creative work that Black women have produced and reflect deeply on the contributions that they make. Black women publish in every, in every area imaginable. All you have to do is find us. Two, integrate Black women into the core of your syllabus in life and in the classroom. Don't just slap us on your bibliography, critically engage us. We aren't just sources of information, we are also theorizers and innovators. Once you have immersed yourself in Black women's work, take the time to let it soak in and shift your thinking. Incorporating Black women into the core of your syllabus means doing more than just making passing references to our work or tacking us onto a syllabus as an afterthought. To truly engage, you must let our ideas transform your thinking and let them lead, not follow traditional hegemonic approaches to your field. 
For example, in anthropology, it is not enough to just add a Zora Neale Hurston reading to your syllabus to be sure you include a Black woman and then pat yourself on the back for a job well done. Think critically about how your syllabus must change if you are to take Black women's thoughts seriously. Ask students to think about how Black feminist anthropology changes our perspectives of culture and power. Acknowledge Black women's intellectual production, number three. Once you have incorporated us into the structure of your class, bibliography, acknowledge our work. How have we uniquely challenged, impacted the field? Say our names out loud. Don't just paraphrase what you've taught, what we've taught you, and pass it off as your own interventions. If you like the idea, let us know who inspired it. When doing literature reviews, when reviewing articles, and when drafting your manuscripts, ask yourself, where are the Black women authors? If they are not there, seek them out, do the work. Number four, make space for Black women to speak. Give us the space and time to speak. If you assign a Black woman's work, invite her to speak on your campus. Invite her to speak in your class and pay her. Support her by attending her conferences, presentations, and talks. Make space in your daily practices to ensure that Black women's ideas are heard. If you are a non-Black person who was invited to speak on panels, ask yourself, where are the Black women? If, they're, if they are not there, advocate for them to be included. Be a true accomplice in words and deeds. Cite us in your lectures, talks, meetings, even casual conversations. It makes a difference. Five, give Black women the space and time to breathe. Black women are doing a lot of visible and invisible labor. Most of us work three to four shifts, not just two. I love the second shift. Don't overwork us. Give us a break. Give us the space to be quiet, write, reflect, laugh, cry, and be. And don't take it personally when we need time away. Do not ask Black women for additional labor to aid your process of citing Black women. Give us the space and time to breathe. And then our charge. What is our charge? The Cite Black Women Collective charges scholars in all disciplines to reimagine hegemonic citational politics by critically and actively reflecting on how gender, race, nationality, and class shape the possibilities of knowledge production. Recognize this. We charge one another to think about practical steps we can all take to transform the academy and the world, while acknowledging that transformation is a continuous process of growth and renewal. We think carefully and at times slowly. However, as Black women scholars, we are often asked to do everything at once, even when we do not have the capacity to do so. The urgency of our survival often requires us to push beyond our limits in malicious and demanding ways to continue to exist in spaces and among people that never meant for us to survive. Yet, we must fight for change. In the spirit of acknowledging what ails us and actively seeking a way forward, we encourage us all to consider the following points and questions which continue to inspire our work. What does it look like to dismantle the patriarchal, white supremacist, heterosexist, imperialist impetus of the neoliberal university and its accomplices by centering Black women's ideas and intellectual contributions in anthropology as well as other disciplines? Right? How are we participating in and naming a genealogy of Black radical feminist tradition within anthropology and other disciplines? What are our tangible and ethical com commitments to this inquiry, historical practice, and way of theorizing? How do we model citation as a Black feminist ethic, not only in our publishing, but in our teaching, service, and mentoring as well? 
How can we restructure and design our classroom environment and educational spaces to look different? What values do we carry into our community environments? What systems are learned from our communities? How can we better merge these practices? Thinking about the politics of citation as a practice, as a praxis, could we imagine what it would look like to think about letters of recommendation, external review letters, reports, and award nominations, the bureaucratic shuffling of institutional life, if you will, as a practice of citation? How can we think about the practice of citation for administrators? For instance, in the legacy of diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, DIA work by Black women erased through citational practice within the university system itself. What does citational currency look like outside of the ivory tower? And if citation is currency, how can we ensure Black women creatives are paid? Finally, in everything we do, we must ask, what does my perspective add and what to what we know? Who has contributed to what I know and what I do not know? And who am I in conversation with? Or who should I be in conversation with to carry this knowledge forward? Okay, so we're so excited to be in conversation. Um, we just wanted to share that piece and sort of set the groundwork, um, the foundations, but move forward in, in figuring out what Cite Black Women and citational practices looks like for you all. Um, so one of our first questions asks about sort of the, the informing process but thinking about for you, who are the black women who inform your day-to-day -day life and what is their legacy for you? And I'm gonna to add to this question and how do you incorporate that in your academic work? So both like how you are working through your black women genealogy yourself and your knowledge production, how it informs your day-to-day -day life and your academic work. All right, I guess I can start. Thank so, you. Yeah. My name is Frances Roberts Gregory. Um, our pronouns are hi, she, her, hers. Um, I'm a postdoc, future faculty fellow at Northeastern University uh, in the School of Public Policy and Urban Affairs. So yeah, my genealogy. So I don't wanna take anyone any, anyone else's uh, uh, thoughts because I know some of the folk on this uh, panel very well and I have some ideas of what they might discuss. But I definitely wanna say it starts with folk who aren't academics. It starts with my mother, my aunties, my grandmothers, all of the women who were radical rule breakers uh, and folk who uh, redefine what black womanhood meant for them. From an academic standpoint, I would say it's definitely the badass, uh, eco-feminist, environmental, um, environmentalists, ecologists, uh, environmental justice advocates who have tirelessly uh, ensured that uh, everyone understands that environmental racism, environmental sexism is uh, unequivocally unacceptable and that we have to imagine um, better, more racially just feminist futures. So I'll stop there to allow other folk to chime in. I'm happy to go next. Hi, everybody. Good afternoon, beautiful people. Uh, my name is Erin Carrison. I use she and her pronouns. Um, I'm a scientist. I am a storyteller. I'm an eternal student. I'm super humble. Um, and I'm an assistant professor in the School of Social Welfare at UC Berkeley. Um, as far as my genealogy, or, or well, I forget the question was, who, who do you think of and speak to in your work? 
Um, I would say too, it starts with family. It starts with my aunties by, by blood or by bond. Um, some of whom are louder than others. And I'm, I think often of the quiet ones, honestly, um, and thinking about the complexities of their stories um, and the choices that they made, many of which were impossible, um, the sacrifices they made so that I wouldn't have to, and the way that, sorry, it's my dog, <laughs> the way that that emerges in my praxis um, is around taking risks so that others don't have to. Um, they're owed that. Both, both my ancestors and, and those in the current and the future, uh, whose legacies are in some way, you know, dependent on ours right now, right? June Jordan says we're the ones we've been waiting for. Um, and then academically, like anybody who's about Black liberation, honestly, I don't care what field or discipline, what language, you know, I love reading in French. <laughs> um, it's whoever is about this fight and it's a long one and it's a good one right it's a righteous one and, and we have a covenant i do with the with the ancestors so this is very simple work for me um i appreciate them they feed me and fuel me and inspire me um and i'm very very grateful and and they're on this call right now i'm like these faces all the hair the glasses i just i'm like yes I'm very, very happy. Um, so that's the beginning of my story anyways. Thank you. Thank you. I can go next. Um, my name is Nicole Ramsey. I'm a sixth year um, PhD candidate in African-American diaspora studies at Berkeley. Um, and, oh, pronoun she, her. And pretty much I'm going to piggyback off of what everybody else said, family. Um specifically my mom and um, my grandmothers, I learned so much from them. And, you know, I'm a person who works on blackness in Latin America and the Caribbean, specifically Central America. And a lot of those histories are, in my opinion, through oral storytelling. Um, so really incorporating these family histories and putting them into, you know, incorporating them into my work. And as part of a larger conversation, of what's happening in the Americas. Um, so I think about that too. Um, and in terms of academics, so I was just talking to Derricka before this call and I was talking about how before I came to Berkeley, like I didn't really have, um, didn't really look, you know, didn't see myself represented in academia, especially in thinking about diaspora. Um, but then when I came to Berkeley, you know, um, meeting so many wonderful, um, grad students that are here on this call as well. Um, my cohort that's in the comments, um, Malaika, and just being exposed, you know, an all black studies department with amazing women doing the work. Um, that's kind of how I look and model my work off of. Um, and then also people that aren't in academia. I learned so much from, you know, social media, Twitter, there's so many conversations that I've been exposed to so many black women through that space. So even looking there, um, and I'll just keep it short, but those are pretty much um, my inspirations and lineage, lineage. I'm happy to chime in. Um, hi everyone, my name is Derricka. I always introduce myself as the daughter of Sylvia Renee. I think being my mother's child, is so important to me. And that's such an important disruption than thinking about myself individually, but always remembering how connected I am 
to community and to my mom. Um, I think when I think about the question of who are the black women that inform my day-to-day life, it's 100% starts with my mom. I think I enter epistemology through alchemy. I think about the black women I saw growing up and I think about the things I saw them make with very little. And I'm like, wow, black women really out here being alchemists and really turning these really destructive, chaotic, painful things into such beautiful things. We make very ugly things really beautiful. And so I am like, that started at home with my mama who was not an academic, but who had a very keen sense of knowledge production in multiple ways. And I think my mom is a metaphor for what I know black women do all the time across the diaspora. Um, And so I'm just grateful to be in community and to have been surrounded by black women like that throughout my entire life. It's truly such a, it feels like a prayer that keeps writing itself across my life. Grateful. Wow. Um, Wow. I just wanted to let that breathe, but I just need to respond to that. Okay. Um, My name's Kirby and I'm just so emotional because I just lost my grandmother in November, um, who's my matriarch in my family. And I get so emotional because we've been here for so long in this, in this new world. And I'm the first person in my family to get it, education. And, and, um, and I wanna say that because because of the colonial education system, we idolize people who are so far away. We idolize the Messiah. We we study in our in our classes the hegemonic thought, right? The the great leaders. But my grandmother was a servant leader at St. John's Missionary Baptist Church in Richmond, California, on South 52nd Street. And that matters. I just want to say that I love you and appreciate you so much, Kirby. And I'm sending you so many hugs through this Zoom screen. And you are not alone in your grieving. I just want to invite all of us to breathe because it is a season of mourning. We have been losing so many of our loved ones. So many of our Black women, so I just want to take a moment to breathe. Um, That's beautiful, Kirby. Thank you. Um, My name is Rila Violet Botswar. I am a doctoral candidate, fourth year in African diaspora and African-American studies here at UC Berkeley. So honored to be on this panel um, with Black women who have held me down as I've navigated this process. Um, I really think about my homegirls a lot, y'all. My work is about Black women's healing spaces in Oakland. And I really am intentional about citing my homegirls. 
my homegirls who are photographers, who are musicians. My project is deeply creative. So I think about how can I cite the Black women whose artistry has allowed me to um, engage my healing more deeply. Um, I also cite my sister. Shout out to her who is in the building. She has her own clothing line. And I just think about what it means for Black women to curate on our bodies um, what feels good to us as we step into the world. So my mother and my sister, definitely. Something I grapple with a lot is how do we um, write for the Black women who we cite who are not in academia? And that's something I constantly struggle with. Um, you know, I sent my mom pieces of my dissertation and she like, I'm glad my name up in here, but I can't read this. So what does it mean that I'm citing my mother, but she can't even read what I'm saying that I'm writing for her, that my homegirls can't even read what I'm trying to do to honor them. And so I think that's an important tension that we have to hold as we're centering folks outside of academia. What does it mean um, for them to not even read what we write for them? And can we write in a way where they can read it? Can we be honest about the fact that they can't read it? Because a lot of times we be acting like we write in an accessible language and it don't be accessible. So I've been having to check myself a lot about that um, as I navigate through. But so honored to be here and thank you all uh, for your words so far. Wow. I think everyone went. So I just still want to hold the space. That was that was beautiful. And also, um, like Whitney said in the beginning, her and I were not supposed to be here, but I believe for myself that Kristen needed space and time and we were able to step in for a reason because all of this is power. And it, and it is all that has always sustained our communities and allowed for us to cite in ways that are visible and invisible in plain sight, right? So it leads me also just to think about the multiple ways that we can use citation to kind of push the boundaries of what it was meant to do and who it was meant for and who it was meant to trace and erase, right? Um, I just feel real, real um, blessed to be here in all the ways that one can be blessed. So my next question, um, I'll, I'll just move down because I think it's, it's timely. What's so political about citations? And maybe merging that next question, what are the politics of citation in your field? Can you tell us a story about how you navigate them? I can answer any part. Man, so I'll go because I feel like, you know, the ancestors with me and thank y'all for supporting me in the chat. You know, it's just uh, ancestral energy is so strong. I've been at Berkeley for eight years. <laughs> Can you imagine being at Berkeley for eight years? <laughs> well, what I've seen them do to my people. But <clears throat> what I will say, what is so political about citation is erasure, that there are women who don't make it through these programs who develop theories that people take and run with to the moon. And um, I've seen it. And um, there are so many women, black women, who I've seen through these eight years, who have produced all of what everybody get praised for today. And um, that's why I'm emotional because it's kind of like, you know, I'm into numerology. It's my eight-year build or destroy. What I'm trying to build is a, is a critical consciousness of what these institutions do to us because 
when we are intellectuals, we don't do it for the universities. Like I said, we do it to empower those like my grandmother in Richmond in the depths and the trenches with the people in Richmond, that there's a flow. So that's why it's political because we don't do it to, to flex in front for the white man and prove that we can speak the language. <laughs> that's why I said I've been here eight years. I wanna speak on it on this level because I've had some experiences because I'm in a department that's a traditional discipline, right? And when you get disciplined because you don't speak their language, you know what I'm saying? It's a dynamic and that's why I'm emotional about it because we have to speak it because there's, I just had a student who I've mentored just get into a PhD in economics at Columbia <laughs> because she listened to me saying, fuck it. I actually don't want to study history. I actually want to study economic history. And actually I want to change that history. I don't want to just think on it in the way that they told me I can only think about it. I actually want to come into the, into the hard STEM. And she did it, but I fear that when she gets to Columbia, it's going to be something more of the same. And so that's why it's political. I'll follow in Kirby. Um, thank you, Kirby. Thank you. Um, I think a lot about uh, the politics of citations. I think they tell us a lot about people's personal politics, one. And I also think it really, really to me boils down to life and death. Like Barbara Christian said, like what I write and how I write is done in order to save my own life. And so I think as Black women, we know that the stakes are high. And we know that if we don't do this work, that a lot of times what's on the other side of that is sickness, disease, death. I think about the Black women I know who were professors at Berkeley who got cancer. And I just started making those threads across different campuses and looking at Black women who died, who became ancestors too soon. And I remember thinking, I don't want to die to get a PhD. Um, and last year I got really sick um, and I had to have surgery and all these things. I'm like, well, What's the common denominator? So I see, I was reading Audre Lorde's The Cancer Journals um, and just kind of thinking about my own trajectory. And I'm like, wow, this is literally killing me from the inside. And I think I started to sit with that and pick that apart. What is it that kills us? It, it's not the physical institution itself, or maybe it is, because I think about my schools growing up that had mold and asbestos. So all of those things become part of that, the ways that institutions kill us. Um, but I think particularly for me and the education department at Berkeley, I think not being able to feel like when I cited black women, I was taken seriously. So I think there was this idea that, well, you have to go to Marx and Foucault if you wanna talk about power. And I thought, but my grandma said that thing. Audrey Lord said that. Why well, I got to go there? I'm not saying that they're irrelevant. I'm just curious why that becomes the genealogy. And so I remember getting quite a bit of pushback in my department. And sometimes that comes from other Black women. And I understand that maybe they want to protect us. You know, there's a lot of things there. There's a lot of truths we can hold. And I think I ended, I, I reached the conclusion that Citations are political because we want to live. And so when our citational practices line up with this desire to live, we start making life with our citations. 
So when Reed cites her sister, that's making life. When I cite my mama, my grandma, that's making life. When I cite Native and Indigenous women who are also erased, who one of my best friends at Berkeley, like knowing that her ancestors' bones, there's more of her ancestors' bones than there are Native students on campus. And it hurts, you know? So when I cite Black women and I think about my political choices, then my citations have to follow, right? Derica, thank you so much for that. Um, I'll say two things about the politics of citation um, and, and tell you a story. So the, the first is, of course, around erasure and acknowledgement, you know, insofar as we participate in or are beholden, you know, to sort of the, the standards of a civilization that relies on the written record, then it matters who we cite, right? Because there therein lies a lot of the memory. Um, I'm gonna say something too about like who I don't cite. <laughs> so I, I am trained in sociology and criminology and I don't think I've mentioned Foucault once since I took my comps. Um, and I am so good with that, you know, and, and to your point, Erica, like not being taken seriously when you cite black women, which is so absurd, you know, like I, I think of who I cite all the time is like, so I, I'm, I'm um, a legal epidemiological scholar and I look at how all structures of law shape health outcomes. Um, so I'm always, always citing Harriet Washington and Cameron Phyllis Jones, you know, and Chandra Ford, our own Amani Allen here on campus. You know, these, I'm like, these are the experts. They've literally, there's like hundreds of years of collective knowledge. Also, they have all the credentials that you made them get. Right. Doesn't mean I can't cite Pookie and Dookie and them, but I'm literally citing people like trained at Johns Hopkins and U Chicago and this and that. So I'm like, so what do you want? And then and then I'm like, all right, so this wasn't about like credential. You just didn't like that I cited a system. Let's just call it what it is. Um, so that's number one. That's not cute. Um, the other thing about why I don't cite um, straight white men is I feel like citation is about critical engagement. And so if you didn't have anything useful to contribute, it is beneath me to put it in my 25 pages. And as a qualitative researcher who has, you know, 10,000 word limits, I just don't have the real estate for your nonsense. So that's how I feel about not citing so-and-so. Also, he got his citations, you know, so this is the other thing about the politics of citation. This is, this is what we use um, for advancement and promotion. He's not trying to get tenure. You know, I want Kristen to be full. I want Whitney to be an associate, you know? So I'm like, I'm citing them because you said those metrics mattered. So I'm just playing your game, you know? Um, and as far as a story related to this, I have gone back and forth with this talking about um, criminal offending. And, and I came into the space intellectually looking at reentry and I was working in prison at the time. Um, and I just really did not like the way my colleagues were talking about Black people, like just any type of way. I'm like, you, you need to get our names out your mouth. So I became very, very invested in telling stories about Black people, full stop. And the reviewers are constantly asking for um, a comparison to white folks. I'm like, well, you can't have it both ways. Either one, I'm allowed to just talk about Black people since you say we're all criminal. God forbid I spend an entire paper talking about Black people in, you know, the carceral enterprise. Um, and also, there are plenty of white studies or whiteness that never, ever, ever nod to a counterfactual of what a world would look like 
had there not been white supremacy, you know? So as long as we're taking givens for givens, you can't, you cannot have it both ways. Um, and it costs me, you know, I have fought with reviewer number two and things have not been accepted, but I will tell you this, um, the more you write, the more emboldened you get. Like, I really don't care. <laughs> My God, I so don't care. It, it blows my mind how much I used to care. And I'm like, God, imagine what I could have gotten done if I had gotten out of my own way, you know? So I'm just encouraging all of you, um, wherever you are sort of in your arc, like don't, that's just noise, that's distraction, right? Um, the more you write, the more emboldened you get, the less your voice will quiver. And also you will elevate your analysis because you've been working these muscles for so long against a tide, right? So you, you're going to be real strong by the end of this. Don't die for it. Like Derek, I got really sick, had a whole nervous breakdown and everything, and I'm still in recovery. Don't do it. Tenure's not worth it. Um, and my dean is a real one, Black woman, and she gets that, that I just had to take a space and take a pause and take a beat. Um, but I'm back. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'm writing what I want to write, where I want to write it, and including who I want to include in those discussions. Um, so I just encourage you to find spaces like these, you know, where you can be affirmed and lifted up. Um, there are so many Black women to cite who do a better job of storytelling and elevating analyses and providing systematic evidence than anybody could ever dream of. Um, and we tell it better because we're so lyrical, right? We turn ugly things like the carceral industrial complex into beautiful stories about, about Black deservedness um, and joy and resilience and love. Um, and so no one else can do that. So you have to, you know, you have to, we have to. Um, and I'm good with that. I don't care about reviewer number two. Also, send your stuff to other Black women, right? Like, especially if it's a paid thing, they're honoraria <laughs> for certain grant reviews. Um, I'll take whatever I can get. You know, I get inundated sometimes and I have to say no. But this is this is the politics of citation. There are papers I know won't get through if I'm not that reviewer number two. You know, so that's that's my contribution um, to, to the storytelling movement. So think about the way you can maneuver. And for folks who aren't Black women, think about that too, right? It, like, how are, you, how are you engaging with this work? What, what is the seriousness with which you take these arguments? How bad do you want it to get out in the world? Even if you don't, who cares? Keep it moving, you know? Like, things like that don't stand in the way. This doesn't have to be, and it shouldn't only be a Black woman's effort, right? This is part of a collective. Um, and if you talk that talk, I think it's very important for you to show up in your praxis with those same values. Um, so I'm gonna go back to mute, but thank you everyone. Thank you so much for all of that. Um, I'm just thinking a lot about pedagogy and how necessary citational praxis is on our syllabi and in our classroom. Shout out to all my students who are hyping me up in the chat. I told my students that it was mandatory for them to be here. Um, and we're going to discuss this panel in our class, right? Because my entire syllabi is only Black women. And that's my politic of care, right? I want to show my students, especially my Black women students, that we are brilliant. Every syllabi I produce, all my homegirls art is up and through there, right? I put lemonade on my syllabus. We're going to deconstruct that. Just showing my students that Black women are brilliant and we have so much theoretically to unpack and that the things that you take for granted about your own life as a Black woman are so rich. So I love those moments when my Black women undergrad students are like, 
I never realized that like that was theory. And I have a homegirl, shout out to my homegirl, Erin, who's at University of Michigan. She has this whole movement called Black Girl Theory, like Black Girls Bend Theory, pedestrian theory. Round the way, Black girls have so much to theorize that we are constantly making sense of our lived experiences and producing knowledge, whether it be on our body, in our sleigh, on our social media feeds, right? There are so many ways that we're constantly producing knowledge that go overlooked. And so I'm always thinking about how do I bring that to my students? I also want to shout out Yaba Blay with Professional Black Girl because I always show her videos in my classes as well and name that as um, intellectual production. When I was an undergrad at Spelman, um, I had a Professor Dr. Spence tell me um, that citation is just about who you want to sit down for dinner with. Like if you imagine yourself at a meal, who do you want to be at that table and who do you want to have a conversation with? And I came up in academia through a Black women's institution, right? So I, everything I learned about anthropology and sociology was through the lens of Black women. So that's how I came to understand intellectual knowledge production. And the most hurtful thing was when I got to my master's program and I was told by other Black women that I wasn't allowed to cite Black women and that all that little stuff I had learned at Spelman wasn't real knowledge production and I had to really learn how to be a real scholar now that I'm not in my little HBCU no more. And I love my department at Berkeley for affirming that I can cite Black women and it can be rigorous. And for all the Black women who are PhD students, I just encourage y'all to get a committee of Black women who lets you cite Black women. Like, I have a dope committee. Uh, shout out to Chayuma, Nadia, Nikki. They let me cite Black women. And they lean deeper, right? We lean deep into how do you cite these Black women with rigor, right? With care. What does it mean to engage these scholars productively? Uh, but 95% of my dissertation is citing Black women. 100% of all my syllabi are citing Black women. And it's not... Um, um, it's so possible, you know, there's, it's so, so possible. And we feel like it's not because we haven't been given models. Um, but I just want to encourage y'all, like, like folks have said, Black women have produced so much and our work is so rich and your spirit will be filled from reading our work, I promise. <laughs> Thank you so much for that, Rhi. Um, As a fellow Spelman alum, it's always exciting, yes, to hear folks uh, shout out the knowledge production of Black women. Um, we've been doing this work, it's nothing new, particularly um, at historically Black institutions. Um, I guess I want to come in as an individual who's actually situated in a majority white um, and male-dominated uh, field, um, environmental science policy management, so I'm also an alum of UC Berkeley. And I think that citations are political because uh, it, it citations um, citations dictate who gets tenure, who doesn't. So my former advisor, Carolyn Finney, was the only black woman in the College of Natural Resources and she was denied tenure on um, sexist and racist grounds. And this is important because I would have never attended Berkeley never would have thought of Berkeley if Carolyn Finney was not a professor um, in the College of Natural Resources. So representation matters. 
And so by me getting a PhD in environmental science policy management and citing black women, folk who are in the academy, folk who are scholar activists, folk who are practitioners, I'm actually creating, uh, contributing to the new generation of environmental energy and climate justice leaders. And that's really important because you know, we have a, we're in a crisis of care and climate. And it's, it's difficult when you wanna have these conversations about what we need to do in order to address um, environmental degradation when folks say, well, that's, I don't see myself in it. You know, that's not something black women do. And that's not true. I know this from being an environmental science major at Spelman College for four years. I know this from being involved in collectives of black women who are ecologists, folk who are farmers, gardeners, folk who are atmospheric scientists, um, environmental engineers even. And so for me, it's really important because this has life or death consequences, as Derricka mentioned. And also, you know, it's about resources. And there's um, a lot of a lot of money, a lot of resources, a lot of stolen resources that are going into this new green economy. And it's important that we are leaders at the table, because as they say, you know, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And if you're not at the table, bring your folding chair. So that's my goal through my citational practices and the syllabi that I create. Thank you, Francis, for that. Um, just want to piggyback. I also have an all-Black women committee, and that's changed my life. Eula Taylor, Dottie Ellis, Tiana Fischel. <laughs> so I just wanted to say that. And then I'm also kind of still navigating this as well. So I feel like I'm learning so much. Um, really sitting with what Dr. Karrison said about We Tell It Better, especially thinking about um, an article that I recently got back where a reviewer was just kind of like, I don't think you understand or are familiar with Belize because I cite, you know, people that are in my family, people that are, you know, the most marginalized of society. Um, so even thinking about that kind of brings me back to like why I do this and why I'm here. Um, and just thinking, you know, bottom line, like we're not even supposed to be here. So while I'm here, you know, I have to make noise and I have to like make myself seen. And even thinking about in terms of like the politics of citation, even like, you know, incorporating black women, but even thinking about the black women are that are the most marginalized and disenfranchised. And even, you know, um, I think, you know, being an interdisciplinary scholar, I've had to kind of grab from different pots. Um, so like Reese said, you know, looking at art, looking at music, looking at images, and then also looking beyond the US in a way too. And that's political thinking beyond language, because I think often, you know, that's the thing that kind of keeps us in, you know, um, this particular box, especially like how the academy um, categorizes us as well. So thinking about, you know, beyond the US, beyond the Anglophone Caribbean, beyond the English language. Um, and that's something that I'm constantly working at as well. I don't have it like perfected, but that's something that I make, you know, an effort um, to incorporate into like my pedagogy and even like my research. Um, so thinking about that also. Thank you all so much. I just love the flow of this conversation and the learning and the love that is being shared. Um, I want to be conscious of time and I know we're, we definitely want to allow audience folks to um, contribute. But one question that I want to pose before we perhaps get there 
is about um, our knowledge coming from these academic spaces, but being shared in the public. So in sociology, we talk a lot about public sociology and things of that nature. And I'm curious for you all who are really leading the way in so many ways. I mean, I wish I had this when I was a graduate student, Um, but I'm wondering how you negotiate the importance and possibility of public scholarship given the demands of the academy and the simultaneous threats of appropriation in the public sphere. So those of you who have done, whether it's writing op-eds or creating art, I mean, the syllabus, I just, I got lost in it just in a glance, this is amazing, but how do you navigate citational practices in these public spheres in whatever sphere that you're engaged in? Are you running? Okay. You can go, you can go, you can go <laughs> okay. okay, Kirby. Um, yeah, so I have a site called blackwomenhealing.com. That's women with an X. And I really use that as a site to um make my 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 knowledge production, you know, more accessible to my homegirls. I think a lot about translation, like how I can use art and creativity and poetics as tools for translation. Um, I just came out with my first book, uh, just came out last week, uh, but it's a book of poetry that's really thinking about like, how do I engage poetics to discuss um, the topics in my dissertation? How do I center my own narrative? as a Black woman? And how do I engage citational praxis even within a book of poetry? So all throughout, every poem has a citation. And that citation is of a Black woman who inspired my healing journey. So I'm constantly thinking about the conversation between academia and my homegirls and my community, especially because my work is about Black women healing. And I'm very, very serious about how I can use what I'm learning through my research to literally support Black women being well and not dying. So I think a lot about what this virtual site can do, what my book can do. I host a monthly healing circle for Black women as well. And just using the healing space as a location to think through, not necessarily intellectually, but spiritually and emotionally, like feel our way through what Audre Lorde and Alice Walker and all these uh, radical Black women have given us. How do we feel our way through that process? Um, So I I think a lot um, that there are so many models. I think Sight Black Women is such a beautiful model of how we can have collective public conversations. But as I said before, when we talk about uh, public scholarship it just feels really important that we have honest conversations about how accessible our stuff is. Even on my website, I be feeling ashamed because I'm like, dang, is that an inaccessible word? Like I be forgetting. I literally forget what I didn't know before I came to academia. And so I think it's really important that we don't lie to ourselves. I think a lot of times 
times we've been conditioned to lie, right? And convince ourselves that we're still accessible. Um, but in reality, a lot of our stuff don't be accessible. And so are we only writing for black women within academia? Are we writing for black women PhD students? Or are we literally writing for your cousin who didn't finish high school? And if we're not writing for our cousins, we just got to be honest about that. Because I think when we're not, we don't check ourselves enough about our own class positionality, right? And our own status and our own positionality. Um, so those are things I'm continuing to navigate and struggle through um, in my process of accessibility. I can add on to that really quickly. I think, so I think like as an academic or when you're going through academia as a graduate student, you know, everyone's like the dissertation, the dissertation, which is obviously very important. But I, I push back against that sometimes because no one from my community is going to read my dissertation. You know, they're, they're, as they're in these databases. People don't have access. Some libraries don't even pay for subscriptions. And so I try to write for magazines. That's been like my goal in the last like two years to write for magazines. I do a lot as well with social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, even like, um, and I even I would say untraditional sites. Like I, like a lot of us are in this like online dating scene and I use online dating to bring awareness to black uh, women academics, black women who are in the environmental field. Like I, I, I think my life However I navigate life, I'm going to bring Black women and those citational practices in there and um, always ensure that folk know that we're here, we've been here. Yeah, thank you, Francis, um, for saying that. You know, as a first generation, you know, the first person in my family to go to college, the first person to be born in the U.S., I often think about that in language a lot. Um, a lot of the times, I remember this one particular moment where my dad was watching, like, um, Mark Lamont Hill or something. And he's like, oh, you know, some he talked about diaspora. That's something that you talk about often. So even thinking about like those those like instances of when they come to your work, it always makes me laugh um, and think and makes me think about like how I address that. And then I think like you know historically thinking about Black people and you know a lot of us come to these theories and um, you know knowledge through you know outside of the written word. Um, so I think social media is like a wonderful space, although it has, you know, its limitations also in terms of like, you know, people stealing your work and things like that. But, um, you know, it's a space of a lot of possibility. Um, I often make playlists that explain, I, like I had a playlist that was like Black Central America, where people can like, you know, actually center people in this music and how they come to like thinking about race, identity and nation through that way. So I feel like I'm on a journey of finding new ways to, you know, speak to different people. And like Derica said, you know, multiple mediums of literacy, um, because I think that's important. And then that's kind of what bridges our work. And then even like as a first generation, I feel like I had to learn this academic language um, to navigate it. And now I'm just kind of like, OK, now I'm between this. Like, how do I, you know, translate this? So um yeah, it's a process, but I'm really enjoying, you know, learning about the different mediums through which I can do that. Nicole, I want to just say thank you for the meditation on language. This brings me to Hortense Spillers. Like, y'all, Hortense told us sticks and stones may break our bones, but words will certainly kill us. And so we know that words are so important. And Tony K. Bombard told us words create worlds. So we have to take seriously acts of language. 
Um, and I'm just thinking about um, someone who comes to mind is Alexis Pauline Gums. And I remember reading her dissertation and thinking, I'm writing a dissertation like that. It's so poetic. There's these love letters. And it is possible to do that. It's hard. It's hard. And sometimes there's a lot of challenges. And I think about people in fields where it may be hard to get an all-Black woman committee. I have an all-Black woman committee, and I've been pushed back on so much because my work is in India. And so one of the questions that I would get asked all the time in terms of public scholarship is what does Black feminism, what can Black women's knowledge production say to your work that's in India? And I'm like, what do you mean? Because if Black women have done nothing else, they understand the workings of power. But I think there was an idea that Black women's work had to stay with the analysis of Black people's lives. And so trying to import that through this international transnational approach was really challenging, especially in public scholarship. And I was told often like, well, Black women aren't experts on that. You can't do that. And so that's something that I think a lot about is just what language can and can't do. And, and the limitations that sometimes come. But I also, re I'm thinking about what you said, and I know that there are models of people who make their work accessible. There are people who decide that this is my politic and I'm going to do it. My friend Sarah Chase, she's an indigenous woman, and she wrote her dissertation in the Hoopa uh, native language and made it accessible to her committee. And that was such a political choice. Our department did not want her to do it. So I want to say, like, we have to know that it's happening. And we sometimes it's, it's kept from us intentionally. And I think we become a part of the genealogies that continue that work as well. I'm citing Sarah because I'm like, I can do this. And an indigenous woman paved the way for me to do it. Uh, oh, my God. Y'all are so amazing. I don't want to leave this panel. But um, <laughs> Uh, we stand for Alexis Pauline Gums because, uh, you know, in her dissertation, she says, you know, what the what the women are doing, they're leaving notes, traces, and premonitions, and that is pretty much my analytic for how I approach my work. That's pretty much why I love and advocate for people like us to join academia because our public intellectual scholarship, we are leaving notes, we are leaving warnings, and we are leaving premonitions to the generation that is following up behind us, okay? Because it's not like we can say it out loud. It's not like there's free speech or anything. It's not like we have constitutional rights in this country. So it's kind of like we really have to kind of be in it, but not of it. And that's really, really, really why it's important to just like also not get caught up in these disciplines too and really cite Black women because, you know, again, I'm in a traditional discipline, right? <laughs> wow. Oh, Lord Jesus. Where do I even start with that? But let me like, okay, basically, I'm basically the point of my story. I was coming in very strong with the black lesbian vibe in, in my discipline. You know, I did my bachelor's in African-American studies with a concentration in gender and sexuality. I wrote my whole senior honors thesis. It was called the black lesbian body, a theoretical meditation. I mean, it was like, it was, it was, it was, it was avant-garde, right? So I'm here thinking I'm going to go to this traditional, uh, you know, discipline to really just 
uh, you know, keep the Black Studies uh, mission alive, you know, the Third World Liberation Front, you know, we wanted really the Third World College, we didn't really want these departments, right? So it was kind of like, all right, let me keep the, let me keep the hope alive, let me expand Black Studies into geography. So then it was like, you know, then I got introduced to people like Camilla Hawthorne and Brittany Mache, who wrote like this amazing, like, journal article and just put the whole department on blast. And I was really trying to say my department without trying to say my department, but here we are. So anyway, <laughs> I mean, it was crazy. This article was like too much tea, but how Camilla and Brittany broke it down was like, yo, look at all of the analytical tools that are at your disposal. Like, you know, it's people like Brittany Mache, who I don't even want to get into her, whatever her research is about in terms of militarization and sub-Saharan Africa. Like, you know what I'm saying? And like Camilla Hawthorne really thinking about the immigration crisis of Black people in the Mediterranean. I mean, it's like, that's the power of being in these disciplines because you get to actually um, create like just really inquire deeply. And so why I love Alexis Pauline Gums and her work is because I created this thing called like a black lesbian analytic of space or like a black lesbian reading of space. Girl, that did not fly in geography. They was like, boop, bop, like bitch, industrialization, where? Like, so, so now like, now as I like, I'm finishing up the dissertation and you know, we keeping it right and tight, you know, it's a bunch of like financialization and all of that, right? Um, urbanization and all of that, that's why that's why it'd be so funny when all these people would be like, oh, Marx and everything. Like, I read Marx because I was being disciplined. Like, I read Capital Volume 1, 2, and 3 for punishment. You know what I'm saying? Like, I really do know about primitive accumulation. Like, let's go. So anyway, I say this to say the reason I was so bold and so willing to take those chances intellectually, and this is why I love college, is because I studied abroad. I went to the University of Cape Town in South Africa, and I was actually there when the students were, were doing this thing called Fees Must Fall and Roads Must Fall. Like, I was literally there. Like, I literally went and studied abroad because they was like, there's a scholarship to go abroad. And little did I know I was going into a revolution <laughs> in South Africa. And that's why you all need to really, really do promote college because there's resources here. Like I literally got a passport and I literally got my ass on the plane and I literally was in South Africa. But those students were so, so smart. But because of the lack of access, because of the limitation of broadband internet access on the continent, we don't even get to know what type of intellectualism is coming out of these locations. And so it, within the US global hegemony that all of us are very much so complicit in, we should really be making space for the African diaspora to say what they need to say, because we still don't even know what's going on, <laughs> right? And so that's why I still be writing so hard because my innovation and everything really comes from scholars out there like Zaytou Matabene, who really was actually talking about black lesbian genocide. <laughs> but do we know about her and, and do we cite her here? So the point is we gotta really bridge the gap, especially us as black women, because we know that there's more to this story and it's in those places where there ain't Wi-Fi. <laughs> and so that's why me personally, I'm in the industrial engineering, I'm in the blockchain, we trying to think about all of it. And that's why I say, please, expand your brain and, and, and like infiltrate these disciplines, infiltrate STEM, because girls, girls, we up in here with the Python and the rest programming languages. You hear what I'm saying? That we are now African diaspora technologists. We are now providing a solution. We are now closing the gap. <laughs> okay. So 
that's why I love Berkeley because again, we are the number one public university up in this whole thing. So take advantage of the opportunity and don't be jaded by it. And don't be again, wasting your youth energy, trying to save late stage capitalism. And that's why I say I actually know Marx. So with all of this crisis is this crisis of overproduction, like let it go, abandon it. Let's do our own thing for sure. <laughs> and then to close out with that smile, Kirby, I can't. <laughs> Let's do our own thing for sure. <laughs> I can't say it. And I'm not even going to start into the conversation. I'll, I'll move on to the next um, point. But it's almost it's almost time. So I just want to at least like bring it all together and let you all at least a little bit um, to speak on one more question. And I'm thinking about um, we've been talking about who we draw from how we live through our citational practices or how you all see your work, how, you, how your lives connect with and how they inform the way that you cite in and outside of university spaces, right? And what that citation looks like in multimodal ways. So I'm thinking then as a, as a, as a kind of final question before we let audience uh, Q&A happen is what do you want to be cited for? What do you want to be cited for? Let me know, let us know. Mine is quick. Love. Love. I, I mean, I want the tenure court. Like, I'm not even going to trip. Like, of course, that matters. And, and so I want those metrics. My, my biggest accomplishment to date was getting the Faculty and Mentor Award at UC Berkeley. That was a citation of love. That was my students coming together saying, we love her. And more than that, she loves us. And we feel it and we know it. And they wrote that down. They cited my love. Um, and it gives me chills. I still think about it, you know, that they marshaled that and did that because it was important to them. It was important to them to cite that love. Um, so I say also this to say, grad students, let me tell you something. I know y'all wait in line and get kicked around and this and that. You you are worth so much more than what anyone has ever told you, like times 10. Um, and you have power and you you know a truth that no one can dismiss, you know. So cite your love too. Cite others' love and cite yours and remember that. Because remember, it's part of the record. It's part of the public memory. Um, so I want to be cited for love above anything else, you know, and, and I'm, I'm very grateful and excited to, to kick it with other people who feel the same way. And it seems like that's the case here. So just thank you for having me. Thank you. I'm excited for Q&A. So I can go next. Uh, I want to be cited for um, mentoring, you know, feminist and environmental uh, radicals. That's what I want to be cited for. And I would say also for taking risk, uh, improvisation, and creativity. I want to be cited for just being an unapologetic, round the way Black girl, you know, like to be uh, for being a hood doctoral candidate. I think hood Black girls don't get enough love in academia when we talk about Black women in the academy. Um, being a hood Black girl is a very different experience from being a Black girl, you know. And so just centering um, everyday round the way Black girl epistemologies, centering that the ghetto is sacred and the sacred is ghetto and that I can be brilliant and Black and round the way all at the same time and encourage other Black women and girls to be the same way 
while we're going through academia, not having to change how we dress, how we talk, how we show up in the room, just bringing our full whole selves unapologetically and trusting that that will guide us in our process through. I can chime in. I want to be, I really appreciate y'all so much. Like, I'm just grateful. Um, Dr. Kirsten, I love what you said about love. You know, like, I think love is always the thing I go back to. And I always think about how love is an act of study. And study is an act of love. When you love something, you study it. And when you study something, you probably really love it. Um, And I think I want to be cited for living for what I love. Um, I used to think, that you had to die for what you love or what you believe in. And I remember being told that like, that's part of revolutionary praxis and politics is that you have to be prepared to die for what you believe in. And I, I don't wanna die. I think I came to that realization last year, um, as a black woman, I wanna live and I wanna keep making life. And so I think about the metaphor of plants and I think about Octavia Butler and I think about all the ways we suture life in some of the most impossible places I don't want to be the center of it. I kind of just want to be behind the scenes. And I want all of those quiet moments, all of those people who don't get credit, all those Black women who are just at the margins and, and uh, the real reasons why I'm still here and my heart is still beating. So that's what I want to be cited for, making life in, in, in the midst of destruction and chaos. I'll let uh, Nicole have the last word because Nicole is going to bring us home with the gospel. But I just want to say, I want to be known for, uh, I don't know, Derek always brings it. She always hype me up. I always feel excited when I speak after Derrica. I, I mean, these are all of my people. I mean, dude, like I said, I've been here for eight years. It is so powerful to see all these people come before me and come up. I mean, I remember when Francis was just getting started and I remember when Francis just Learn that Carolyn Finney may not even be her freaking chair anymore. And it's like, to see you now as a postdoc, it is so powerful. Nicole and Derricka, I mean, Bree, <sighs> Lord. Anyway, I want to be remembered for that Black lesbian consciousness. You know, I want to be remembered for that return to the matriarchy. I want to remind people that it is the return of the repressed, y'all. You had 500 years. Now it's now it's just done. It's done, Dito. Okay, for Shelly. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> um, I think what I would want to be remembered or cited for um, is between the lines of like what Derricka was saying, you know, to live and then love. Um, and then, you know, just um, diaspora knowledge and making a way. I feel like, you know, out of wherever we find ourselves, whether it's like graduate school or, you know, tenure track or academia or even like, you know, outside of these spaces, just making a way. And I try to like hold that with me through, especially in this pandemic um, where nothing's certain, um, knowing that, you know, you'll make a way. So I, yeah, I guess I'll just leave it with that. Um, Thank you. I agree with Imani. I'm so glad that circumstance would have it that I could be here with you all today. Um, I really feel blessed to hear your words and I, 100% think that all of those things will come true, that we will. We do see you all, we will remember you all, and we will definitely cite you in our texts, in our words, in our hearts, and all of that. So thank you so much for giving us all of this that you have given us in this moment. 
Um, sadly, we are getting close to the end of time. And I, I honestly, this has been like, I feel like this panel just started. Um, so I'm really upset about this, but we will be turning it into a podcast and we can come back and return to it in any way. Um, I did want to open it up for at least one question from someone in the audience. So if you want to raise your hand, we could call on you in that way. But as we are moving to the final portion of like the q and I want to share um, a link here. This is something that Caleb put together, a brilliant idea, I think, where we can in real time curate a collective um, collection from this conversation. So as he wrote, we want to know who is contributing and who what you would like to contribute towards a collection of scholars and resources by and about Black women knowledge producers. So hopefully you are able to click on the link and it will send you to a Google form where you can just share, <laughs> um, where we are building this archive, this collection, um, using these inter-transdisciplinary roots of ours and putting them all together. Um, so I think that's such a brilliant idea. Thank you, Caleb, for all of your work behind the scenes to do all of this. Um, but do take a moment, whether it be right now or later today or when the spirit moves you, to bring information into this so that we can all sort of continue this praxis together. And feel free to share and populate multiple times. Um, so is there anyone, I'm looking at the participants, is there anyone with a question that they would like to ask in these remaining minutes? Someone who's been listening? Hello everybody, thank you for uh, hosting this and, and I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I just have a super quick question about peer review and uh, my work after uh, finishing my PhD has been in with other uh, uh, people in really trying to um, think about how we can bring more equity to the peer review process. So just as a citation is a really big barrier to knowledge uh, getting out there and it's dominated by uh, patriarchy and, and white supremacy in its all uh, full uh, process. So I wonder if anyone has any thought on, uh, and uh, as part of this work, it could also be, um, uh, trying to get at that uh, at that process and and uh, tearing down the patriarchal white supremacy system that dominates it. So I got lost in that. It doesn't mean it wasn't a great question. <laughs> I, I'm just thinking about the the citation uh, as they all are talking about as a, yeah. as a way to bring the knowledge, but also like the the peer review and how your scholarship is is reviewed before it's it's published in, in editorials and books. I come from. Neuroscience it might be different the way how we do it, but that is a huge barrier to the dissemination of knowledge of that course. is not. And so I'm just wondering if uh, any of this and, and if you have any reflection on how that could be applied, that this movement that you have created could be applied to uh, and expanded to the peer review. Uh, yeah, don't be reviewer number two. And how we were talking about, you know, not questioning Black women's praxis or knowledge or epistemologies or checking that you are not fit to review this manuscript, you know, because you are ignorant on these things. Like, that's okay. I tell people, I'm like, this isn't my specialty. Um, just in the interest of getting to the next question, I, I would just reiterate that, how I said earlier, like, you know, push it through. That's, that's some of the best work you can do is to push through good work. Wendy, I didn't mean to moderate. I'm, I'm like, I just want to hear from like, get into the woo, enter the woo, let's go. 
There's a lot of people hyping I, I, I was on. Like, that was a glitch, huh? Okay. Not, there's a lot of people <laughs> on the chat. I'm like, I want to hear. I know the chat has been popping off in the most wonderful way. So I love it. I love it. I see one more hand here. If you want to go ahead and unmute yourself, then this will be our last question. Peace, everybody. I'm just so grateful to be in the space, to be a student of so many of the Black women in this panel and on this panel. Something I wanted to ask just in terms of citation, I know that um, spiritual element has been such a part of our history as a people, communing with our ancestors, referring to them for guidance. I just wanted to ask how um, space is made for that spiritual communion with ancestors in your work. How do you cite uh, like Araminti in, in your work with um, the environment who had to navigate the landscape in order to lead our people to freedom? Or how do you commune and center that in, in your work? How do you make space and be undisciplined as my amazing sis Kirby would say? Thank you. I would love to chime in really quick on this. Thank you for that beautiful question. It makes me think about Lucille Clifton and how she said like majority of her poems were came to her in dreams and they were like different ancestors and figures. And Toni Morrison also talks about this with Beloved. Um, so I think there's this lineage of Black women who talk about how things come to them through these spiritual means. And also M. Jackie Alexander, um, talks about this. So there, there's the, and I think those are the people I would cite thinking of this and just, I'm so grateful for them. And I'm glad you asked this question because I think a lot of times you can kind of be looked at crazy when you talk about ancestors or dream work or all of those things, because your citations in the traditional academic sense, is like, you need evidence, right? And so when you start talking about ancestors, you got, you're going to upset the whole heteronormative patriarchy because they, there's somehow no evidence. So Thank you for that. Yeah, I do want to uplift um, one. There's a really awesome article I love by Jose Munoz called Ephemeras Evidence. And it's like basically something I just cite when you want to go there. But also there is, I just want to uplift my ancestor who just transitioned. Uh, my babe came through with the VBS bus down, but she also uh, got me this necklace on the other side of his um Lynn Keller, who was my ancestor who just passed. And she was my mentor. She also passed in December, another matriarch in the black lesbian community. And um she's she's the creator of the black uh, the Barrier Lesbian Archive. And you know, honestly, it was it was pretty dark. It's like that's pretty much the whole reason for the season. Like, you know, like we had a whole plan to get this work out to the community, and she passed on me, right? So but the crazy part is I gained a new mentor through Dr. Brandy Summers, who's my who's my chair. I, I had to do a little switcheroo on my chair, but I, I found this brilliant black woman. And so what felt like, damn, no more hope and opportunity because my mentor is gone. I got a new one. And so that's Ashe. That's the life force. <laughs> We've been here before, and so we're going to come back again until the work is done. So um, that's just my approach to it. Yeah, um, thank you so much for sharing that, Kirby. I really feel you when you're talking about um, the loss of mentors. Um, I would say as an eco-womanist, I seriously consider, consider spirituality as part of my methodology, but also my praxis. And so 
Um, I've actually used my autoethnographic work to focus on, which means I'm focusing on my own experience as an environmental activist, to really think about how spirit guides me, um, provides lessons, and also sometimes has a has a has a very strong stop stop sign, like don't do that, girl. Um, and one of my mentors, Dr. Reverend um, Melanie Harris, um, she's an eco-womanist theologian. Um, she wrote the book on eco-womanism and she talks about how important it is to engage spirit and how there's a long legacy of black women doing so. And so for me, that's part of praxis. Um, and yeah, I would just say that I, I think that uh, sometimes we have to engage our intuitive knowledge. I think embodied knowledge is really important um, and that's part of, that's also part, I think, a, a Black feminist praxis. And oftentimes when we do so, we'll make different choices. And also, if we're guided by the understanding that we are gods, you know, I believe the Black woman is God. And so I constantly invoke feminine divinity in my work, in my scholarship. Yes, I'll um, add to that. So that's, you know, spirituality and like how I approach my work is definitely something that um, I feel like is, I don't know, I'm tapping into more. Um, like for those, I talk a lot about my grandmother who, um, you know, as a kid, my parents worked a lot. So I spent like after school and summers at her house and, you know, just, you know, the conversations we would have. And just, I think now, like at my age, just realizing like all these conversations were kind of this plan to bring me am now into what I'm studying, because even um, like I dedicated a whole, like, um, like a post or like a, a think piece about like how my grandmother helps me understand like, you know, colonialism and independence and things like that. And it was just kind of like a moment where it's like everything made sense. So I just started thinking about that lately and just even how that kind of guides me moving forward. Like I'm at a time where, or I'm at a point in life where I'm just kind of um, there's some confusion about like what my work is supposed to do or like finishing the dissertation or not. Um, and then I just think like thinking back to that, like everything is okay. Like I already have all the tools that I need because I have like this protection or this, you know, spirit. Um, and just thinking about that a little bit more. So I'm really happy to, you know, for that question, because that's something that I feel like I didn't even have the space to think something that definitely informs like how I move forward and how I even like read other people's work and, you know, their background and their, you know, coming to their spirituality and things like that. So, yes, thank you for that question. Yeah, my work thinks a lot about um, ancestral memory um, and shout out to Kirby. I forgot to mention that I also cite Kirby in my dissertation and in my syllabi. Kirby curated this beautiful piece um, that was just in memory of folks who have died in the town in Oakland. And it's this huge picture of Nia Wilson on it um, and just a curation of like mourning and honoring and grief work of those who have passed on. So in the fourth chapter of my dissertation, that image actually starts out the section. And that whole section is just about what it means to 
slip into moments of convening with our ancestors and what that feels like in the body, what that feels like in the spirit, how time and space collapse when we are in the presence of those ancestral energies and how ancestral memory becomes central to our processes of moving through this work, especially when we're talking about and thinking through healing because it's so intergenerational. And I want to say so much gratitude to Professor Kerrison when you talked about the silent ones. That really touched me because so many of the Black women in my lineage and in my family weren't these huge revolutionary, right? They were very silent. And sitting with the fact that my ancestors, these Black women had to be silent in order to survive. And that if they speak, they could die. They could lose their life. They could lose their safety just for speaking their truth. And so how do I convene with those silent ones who are able to find their voice and find their stories through me? How do I convene with them and lean into ancestral consent, right? Because sometimes my grandmama be like, hold up. I don't want everybody to know all that. So how do I get consent from my ancestors to tell their stories? And that takes a lot of care and intention in that practice as well. What a great question. Thank you so much for offering that. And I think, um, you know, we had a lot to share. You all had a lot to share about that, but it wasn't sort of something in my mind or pre-programmed, which sort of, goes back to how like the academy can be so constrictive. So I really appreciate that question. Um, we are technically at time. This conversation is flowing, it's going. I know that I saw a question from, um, I believe Rashad, who has been going off in the chat the whole time. And so I wanted to make sure you had the ability to ask this question. Um, for those of you who have to go, I we all completely understand. I did drop in the chat the agenda that was curated by Caleb, I believe, that has so many links I do encourage you to check out, including Sight Black Women, the collective, the t-shirts. Right now we are, I think, moving funds over to Texas for the support, we move them often. Um, also the syllabi, the journals, just the links for the curation project that we're working on. So do check out the agenda. Um, and continue to engage in all of these dialogues. But I will offer, for those of you who can stay, the last question now uh, before we close. I, I just wanted to uh, ask a question of uh, all of these beautiful folks on this panel who I'm grateful to think with and learn from. Um, I just will, wanted to ask them to talk about um, yeah, how they love each other in their work in real life. Um, I know that there are a lot of, uh, yeah, there's so much like intertextuality in like all of these women's work. Um, yeah, and so I just was interested to hear <laughs> them talk about how they love each other <laughs> um, in their work in real life. I just want to say shout out to Kirby because Kirby has loved me through this process. Like I said, I cite Kirby in my work. I told Kirby that she is like another chair of my committee. Um, Kirby has like held me down so much. 
um, through these classes that was hella white and hella dry. We'd be sitting next to each other like, girl, what is they talking about? I don't know. This is basic. And we would literally be finding ways to have our own Black feminist dialogues about the basic stuff that was occurring in these predominantly white courses. So I just am so grateful to Kirby for being my friend, for being my homegirl, for being my writer um, through this whole process. Um, And I think that especially at Berkeley, what I've loved is there's such a tight knit community of black women. Like we really do hold each other down. You know, black women on our campus um, really look out for each other and we lean into a black feminist praxis, not just in our intellectual production, but we really show up for each other. Sis, are you well? Sis, how are you doing? Like, how is your spirit and your energy today? And I think that stepping into UC Berkeley and this environment of Black women loving Black women in a very real, authentic way has really provided the groundwork and the framework for me to be well as I move through this process. So I'm just so grateful to all of the Black women who've held me down, Derricka, Nicole, my professors, Francis, just knowing your name and knowing all the brilliance you've done, even though we've never been able to spend time, I know that you Francis laid the groundwork for the BJSA. I know you did so much to set the tone and the atmosphere for what I was able to walk into. So thank you. And thank you to all the Black women who've made my experience at Berkeley possible. Yes, I love this. I just love everyone here. I was talking to Derricka earlier about how I feel like I have a connection with everyone at Berkeley. I feel like Kirby was the first, like whenever I would talk to Kirby on the sixth floor, and be like, oh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm writing this. It's always like a yes, like yes, scholar. And I'm just like, she's congratulating me all the time for, but it really made a difference. And just, you know, having conversations with Kirby and like, you know, really expand my own thinking. And then even like Re, you know, we kind of have the same path, you know, coming from UCLA's apartment to like Berkeley and like going through that together and being at Cal. And I feel like Derricka and Francis, Francis was the one who encouraged me to move to Oakland, by the way. <laughs> and just kind of like both Derek and, Derek and Francis have been there throughout and just, you know, not even within the space of academia, but as just like a black woman in this world. And I've just learned so much from both of them. So I just love everyone and just here in real life. So yeah, I just, yeah, I'll stop. <laughs> I love it. I love hearing. Oh, I'm sorry, Derica. please. You okay? Okay. I always want, I'm like, I want my students to speak. I'm like, whatever. I get the mic too much. Um, well, I'll just say quickly. I love, love, love hearing about this. I'm like, Kirby, you like the ambassador cheerleader. It sounds like, and I'm so down for it. And what I would like to see is more integration. Um, because we have that amongst black women faculty, um, we roll deep and love each other very hard. Um, and I, and I just, I'm going to work on that. Not, not I wish, um, I'm going to work on that because there's no reason why we can't. And black staff are so beautiful. They really are. Um, and another way to Rashad's point about how do you, how do you love on one another? I, let me, I love shelter in place. It is working for me. I'm not mad about it. I do miss being on campus and just smiling at one another. And I cannot tell you how many black women and girls have said, can I just hug you? Yes. Yes. Get in here. I smell good. I'm very soft. (laughs) I'm not a six pack kind of woman, you know, I'm like, yes. And we both feel so good, you know? So my, my arms are around 
all of you always without qualification unequivocally. And I can't wait for the day, you know, where we can really hold each other. Um, but in the interim, right? Meantime, in between time, let's get real about integrating um, across campus, across rank, across experience, you know, all of that. Um, Cause it's necessary, we have work to do, but also we deserve love and we need to be very intentional about how to secure it. Um, so Rashad, thank you so much for that question and to all of you for just being so gorgeous and wonderful with one another. I'm so happy I met you. I'm so like, I love, I cite that, I cite this. Yes, girl, get it. I'm like, oh, this is the best panel. It's just, it's really wonderful. You all love very big um, and it's really humbling. Oh, I just want to piggyback on that, Miss Harrison. Yes, like, yes, like, the 53 people who are still on this call, let me tell you, I am, again, eight. I mean, if you ever seen the last I, last days of Lisa Left Eye Lopez, that's my stuff. So that's why eight is a good number. Build or destroy. What I'm trying to say, y'all, we need to build the alternative that I have been here for eight years. I have seen the bamboozling. I have seen the co-optation. I was here when Frances lost her dissertation chair. <laughs> And she was left without no resources, but still she rose. That's the shit I'm talking about. Also, like, that's why the next eight years needs to be about building pathways to the professoriate and also bringing in more ghetto scholars. We need to get honest that we need to start doing some. Now that we don't got Proposition 16 in the state of California, we all need some social equity admissions policies now based on the census track zip codes, okay? Like... Y'all got the message. Now do the work and develop the policy and I'll be looking for it five years from now. Okay. Cause I told y'all about it. And that is what we're talking about. We need more people up in this thing, more people getting these resources that we cannot just be content with being the talented 10th. Right. Like we was all like hella against Dubai and everything and everything. <laughs> I don't know. Black people have a weird relationship with WEB. Like one day they like him, one day they don't, one day he come, one day he good. Like, <laughs> but that's a whole other conversation. But it's like, that's why I mess with like my community and especially the community of black women at this university, because it's like people like Kenley Brown, Sharice Burden Stelly. I mean, these like the OGs. I mean, even with uh, Nzinga Dugasla from the ASD, I mean, this is all of our matriarchs. I mean, like, I mean, Carol Walker, Lisa Walker. I mean, these are all of these black women who held me down when I was 18 years old and who gave me the game and unlocked my brain. And it was people like Frances when I was seeing her breaking down the logic of like, yo, this is this institution. I got the message and that's why I was still, I still found out a way to study space. I knew it wasn't going to be in environmental sciences. <laughs> Because I wasn't trying to end up like Francis, but I found a way to figure out how I was going to study gentrification and the impacts on my people. Right. And it's like, that's why we got to learn from each other. When we share our experiences, we're not sharing our trauma. And that's why I really want to build Black women solidarity on this campus, because when Black women speak, it's like, met with is met with deaf ears and i'm sorry that's ableist language but you know it's like it, it falls on people who ain't even like really trying to hear it because they thinking oh she's just bitching but it's like we are sharing our wisdom <laughs> we are sharing what you should not do because we are have already been through here and i learned that so strongly from the Veve clark scholars which i was a part of and that's how I know people like Nicole and that's how I met people like Derek on the sixth floor because African American studies is is a political space and it's a space that we should all reclaim. And it's a space that even if you're an undergraduate student, the very minimum you could do is minor in it. <laughs> I mean, for real. 
and join something like the Veve Clark Scholar Society because that's how I even became radicalized and politicized to all of this. And there's so many alternative indigenous, you know, grassroots, alternative under common spaces at this university that we still need to maintain and sustain and, and support. And so that's why I love all of y'all because, you know, we got to put each other on and put each other on game. And that's why I love it. And that's why I love y'all. And, and thank you, Caleb, for this panel. And thank you, Caleb, for being a righteous Black man. I do want to lift up the brothers on this campus who actually recognize the full humanity of Black women and who don't want to be an antagonistic partner to us and who actually want to see us at the spotlight and want to see us win. So I do want to uplift brothers like Caleb, who's really doing the work um, to really, 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 really be in partnership with us. And so I just love it. I love you all. I'll quickly say thank you, Kirby. I love Kirby. Oh my God. I love me some Kirby. Um, I just I appreciate Rashad asking this question about how we love on each other. I'm I I'm just told a really quick thing. I say Francis saved my life because she was the first person I met at Berkeley. And I was like, California is weird. I don't see a lot of black people. I'm from the South. I'm confused. Maybe I need to leave. And Francis was like, here's a list of all the places you can live. Here's a list of all the restaurants. Sis, let me tell you this. And I was like, oh my God. Okay. And like, literally though, that saved my life because it helped me find myself and to feel like I could do this. And I think everyone on this panel, we've come into contact in some way and has supported each other throughout. I appreciate you saying that because I really have seen that practice of love throughout my time. And I think my friend Tiffany is on this call. And one of the things I learned from her and I, I told her, I'm going to say it, every time I get a chance is when black women love each other, we literally extend each other's lives. And my friend, her research looks at the biophysiology, okay, I don't know this word, y'all, but the physiology of how that actually happens. And I can't really explain her study, but what I know is that she did this work and literally sees how when we love each other, it keeps us alive. And I think that's so beautiful because I'm alive because of Black women on this panel. I'm alive because of Black women at campus who smiled at me. Thank you so much, Dr. Karrison, for reminding me of that. There's a Black woman, Karen, in my department who literally, I would tell her I'm dropping out this week. And she's like, no, you're not. I'm going to call your mama. I said, my mama's not alive. She said, well, I'm going to be your mama. I'm going to call it in the ancestral realm. And because of Karen, I'm going to finish. And so all of the Black women who've loved me and kept me alive, and I hope I continue that legacy and just loving each other. Our love is so sacred and it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. So yeah, I guess I will add really quickly, uh, all of you, I love all of you. I wanna first shout out some of the more senior scholars because um, when I was dealing, continuing to deal with PTSD from uh, graduate school, and I mean that very intentionally PTSD, it was senior scholars, Black women who were part of the Sight Black Women Collective, Focus Spellman, who really lifted me up and held me and showed me that there was a way for me to um, finish my doctoral degree. So shout out to the more senior scholars who are acting as bridge builders and um, mentors. And then for everyone on this panel, the folk that I've spent um, time in person with, folk who I know through conversation and conferences, I love all of y'all because y'all are the shit, you're doing your thing, and we really are going to transform the world. And y'all some of y'all say I I saved your life y'all saved my life if it wasn't for black graduate student association um I would have dropped out I would have never finished my degree and I would have been consumed by um 
that shame and that guilt. So thank you for saving my lives through your camaraderie um, and your just your friendship and solidarity. Oh, that was beautiful. Well, on that note, there is nothing much more to say as far as the moderators, but in the um, aftermath of like witnessing so much sacred love from the beginning of this conversation into and through and how it's developed and leaving a mark because it'll, it'll, it'll stay with me. And I'm sure with many other people who've been able to li- listen and witness and ob- observe the, the power that is um, black women are actually supporting each other through and through beyond what is quote unquote required of us in the university. It's like, you know, uh, what does it look like to ride or die for someone no matter what? And it looks like this. So, you know, cheers to sacred love. So I am happy uh, to have been here as a part of the site black women collective and have that as a starting off point for such uh, like generative, beautiful, powerful conversation. So, um, I, and on behalf of Whitney as well, would love to pass it off to Caleb to close things up. But thank you for everything. Y'all, this has been such a treat. Y'all are such a treat. Thank you for your, thank you for being generous with one another, for holding one another and making such a beautiful space. Thank you, Whitney Pirtle and Mani Wadud for uh, just, yeah, getting to hold space with people that, you know, you met really today. Um, Y'all were phenomenal moderators and I'm so grateful that y'all could show up with us. Derricka, Nicole, Aaron, Rila Violet, Kirby, Francis, y'all are so loved and we're so grateful for your generosity today. Um, Thank you for spending this time with us. Um, Yeah, this is such a treat and I'm grateful that we can archive this and continue to celebrate all the knowledge production. Also our audience, y'all are so great. The chat has been blowing up and we're most deaf, Elizabeth out there in the chat cohort, reminded us to definitely save this chat. So this is a part of the archive too. I love how participatory this was. Um, and we, yeah, I encourage you to check out the program um, to stay tuned about some of the links that folk are using. Um, we try to have it be a living document and that hopefully the archive that we fill out together can can extend beyond today. So, so grateful for y'all. Be in touch, continue to cite Black women. And that's that, it's that simple, right? Okay, love y'all. Thank you all so much.